here's something to think about. How many pediatricians' offices don't have enough seats for both parents to sit there? That's our friend, psychologist Dr. Rita Eichenstein. You know, there's a table for the child, and maybe one chair is an afterthought. Well, child doesn't come in like a patient. <laughs> this is a whole universe entering. Sometimes the grandma comes. Um, you know, when I was seeing people in my office, I had a giant waiting room because it was like a party out there. We have the little siblings and their strollers and the moms and the dads and the grandparents. And why does everyone come? A child is a family construct. It's not an isolated, broken finger. You're listening to A Little Easier. I'm Kendra Wild. What I wish I'd known earlier in my own journey is that challenges with one child can affect the whole family. Understanding that can do a couple of things. It can help us pay attention to everyone's needs. That's most of what we'll talk about this time on A Little Easier. But Dr. Nicole Birkins also reminds us that paying attention to families can actually help us come together to find the right solution for the one who's struggling. The reality is that in order to address the challenges and the issues, we have to be looking at the family system. We need to look at because parents hold the keys to so many of the positive changes and interventions. It just does no good for me as a practitioner to make a list of recommendations of here's the things that are gonna help your child. If I haven't done any assessment or dug into it all, what is the likelihood that that this family is in a situation to actually be able to do this? And where do I need to start with them? In Dr. Nicole's practice, finding a treatment plan is a collaboration. Here's some options. Here's some things I think might be helpful. Here's what these things would entail. Give me feedback. How does that sound to you? Does that sound doable? Does that sound overwhelming? Like I need to be collaborating Mm -hmm. with them. And the sign of a really, really excellent and appropriate treatment plan is not just that it fundamentally addresses what's going on for the child, but that it takes into account what is doable and manageable and can actually happen in the context of um, the family system. So everyone matters in a family. All this pressure can be a lot for marriages and partnerships. In this episode, we're going to dig into how it affects them. And a little caution here, we're going to hear some difficult and intimate stories later on that you might find upsetting. But first, we're going to talk about siblings. When you have a child who requires more of your attention, how does that affect your other kids? What do brothers and sisters wish we knew? To find out, we're going to hear the stories of two people who advocate for siblings. One is a mother with a complicated family who's managing many different sibling relationships. And the other is a sibling herself who's taken her experiences and turned them into her vocation in life. So my name is Emily Hall and uh, being a sibling is a big part of my identity has been for my whole life. My brother, by the way, is two years older than I am. He has an intellectual disability and 
you know, he's just the coolest. And don't don't tell him that I said that because <laughs> his head will get even bigger. But <laughs> but we've always had a close relationship and uh, a love hate relationship sometimes, as close siblings will. My name is Janice, Janice Dort. I'm recently remarried. Uh, my husband is Thomas. We have six kids between us. So we are a big, happy family <laughs> and big. <laughs> my second oldest is Christian and he has autism and epilepsy. He was diagnosed with autism at two and epilepsy around the same exact time. Nice guy, no, a, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S. People will say he's nonverbal, but he does communicate. And we're always learning new ways to communicate with him. My brother is really at the center of many of my personal and professional decisions. And I'm the lucky person who gets to be the director of the Sibling Support Project. We are the first national organization in the United States that's dedicated entirely to supporting brothers and sisters of people with special developmental health and mental health concerns. I uh, founded Special Needs Siblings when I was mm, pregnant with the twins and I realized that, uh, oh, there's a lot that goes on with our siblings and I started looking for support and realized there wasn't a lot of stuff out there. And it really just started as an Instagram account and Facebook. It grew into this beautiful organization of siblings supporting siblings and raising awareness for the siblings in our families. We were founded by Don Meyer. He created this amazing thing called a Sib Shop to help young brothers and sisters, um, first of all, meet one another, um, receive information and, and support, and uh, learn about the disabilities that their brothers and sisters have. Many siblings uh, grow up feeling very isolated, feeling that their peers couldn't possibly understand what, uh, what's going on in their homes. I think another thing that's challenging, I feel like sometimes for siblings is communicating with their parents how they're really feeling. His brother, um, Caleb, he started asking me to take medicine and he was like, I wish I was sick and I want some medicine too, just like Christian. And at first I was so hurt and I was so dismissive and like, how dare you say something like that? Why would you want to be sick? And then I had to sit back and like, ask myself, why is he asking these questions? And um, that's, that's really what started the journey is the kids themselves. So very young siblings, they need to know two things. They need to know that they didn't cause the disability and they can't catch the disability. Because if I am four, and uh, I can catch my sister's strep throat, why would I not be able to catch her spina bifida as well? Right? Likewise, we know many, many young siblings who think that maybe something they said or did caused their sibling's disability. Yeah. A really tough thing to carry around for a little person or for anyone. You think someone on the surface is looking, they look fine, but the fact is inside, there's probably a lot of torment going on and turmoil and trying to find themselves in a space that um, parents are still trying to find themselves. <laughs> so that permission to, can I even have a bad day? Are my days valid? Because they're not as bad as my brother's days, but I still really had a tough time at school. So how do I, how do I say that without feeling selfish? 
particularly with kids with disabilities, daily routines are so centered around the child with a disability um, that it's, it's easy for siblings to feel sort of lost and invisible. And so siblings who tell us they fare well in the resentment department, one of the things they say their parents did growing up, they, um, they created something else that the family could connect over. So maybe music or sports, or maybe it was camping or, uh, or hiking, but something brought them together besides just this disability. So a lot of siblings are super empathetic. I mean, they can feel things, they see things, but then they also, the joy is like, sometimes they see their siblings in ways that their parents don't. So they're not, they're not going to give that extra like, oh, it's okay, Johnny, it's not okay. Like, no, they're like, that's still my brother and I'm still angry with him and he better leave my stuff alone or I'm going to kick him. Like, this is, and that's okay. <laughs> like, you gotta like give room for that tug of war. You know, sometimes parents come to us and they say, well, my child wouldn't need a sim shot. My child's doing great. They're getting straight A's in school and they're on the debate team and they're playing sports. And I always say, oh, those are the ones you really need to worry about. Uh -huh. you know, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not because those are the, the children who really need to know that, um, that it's okay not to be perfect. I know my daughter had a conversation with me before and she was like, mom, sometimes you get really snappy and I know you're busy, but maybe if you could just say like, I'm doing something right now and I'll get right back to you instead of just like, no, no, no. It's just one of those things that you like kind of take and you're like, ugh. But realizing <laughs> that you can apologize to your kids and still be a parent, like <laughs> you can say, I'm sorry, like, and um, show your kids that it's okay to make mistakes. So many of us are helpers and we genuinely want to um, assist and, uh, and help lighten the load for other people. And that's a, that's a beautiful way to be in life, right? But I think many siblings grow up feeling that they put their own needs second and that really impacts them later in life. I think we're, we've grown a lot from where we were and now we're hitting teenage years, so it's tough. Like, I think this is gonna be mm -hmm. a tough season, a challenging season, but I'm hopeful because I've seen so many siblings as adults and I hear their stories and I know that no matter how difficult it is right now, children are resilient and they'll eventually find their way. Siblings aren't the only people in a family who can feel the impact of a child with higher needs. Often this kind of challenge has a drastic impact on marriages and partnerships. You're getting tugged in so many different directions and, and you're each going through your own emotional adjustment. Sometimes it can be hard or impossible to hold it together. Yeah, I, I'm, it's hard to know for me where to begin. Um, but I mean, my husband, I keep calling him my husband. I don't know what to call him because we're in, in between. Um, we're separated with the intention of divorce. I mean, he's with someone else. Um, and um, that's, um, you know, that's why he left. When they were still together, Joanna and her husband adopted two girls who both have fetal alcohol syndrome and reactive attachment disorder. I, I'm still wrapping my mind around that um, for like how that affected our marriage. I know that it has, it has 
everything to do with um, how we went our separate ways. I, I kept thinking that I needed to make more and more time for him to take care of himself so that he would be okay. And, um, and then I was left with nothing. At the time I talked with Joanna, a lot of this was still very raw and unresolved for her. She was gracious in allowing me a window into how she was rethinking her life as a single parent of two children with significant challenges. It's still critical for me to, to go back to um, my own separateness and not think about Nate and yeah. not spend all this time like what I could have done to fix it and how I could, how I could help him now and how, how the girls, they're going to drown now that they have two parents that adopted them that like couldn't even stay together for, you know, just this, the negative stuff. Again, it's comparing um, my idea of what things should be like versus working with what I have. In the end, Joanna acknowledges that neither of them really realized what they were up against at the time. I think we tried, you know, I think both of us really tried. Um, and the role that um, PTSD played in our family, like Nate had it, I had it, and the girls. And so it's very, very hard to live like that. I don't know how families do it. I really don't. Like how you, they stay together when there's that much trauma. And there's this extra layer of hardship when the rest of the world just doesn't understand. Mantu Joshi says that's particularly true when kids struggle with things you can't see, like mental health, developmental, and behavioral challenges. The exact situation Joanna and her husband faced. Things that are invisible to other people, um, especially if, if, if a child's needs are, are neurobehavioral, where other people don't know what's going on, that it's hidden, um, that can be brutal on a marriage or partnership. And in fact, uh, this is an interesting part of the, <laughs> the research I found, was that partnerships where um, the disability was more obvious, uh -huh. the, the rates of separation are actually less than typical couples. And so there's something about the way that we interact with the world and the pressures that the world puts on us that doesn't understand what we're going through, that's really hard on partnerships and marriages. There is a lot of unspoken grief um, when you have a child with struggles. And there are lots of different stages of grief. And you and your partner might not be going through the same stage at the same time. So you might have one partner who's in absolute denial while the other partner's in anger. And so, you know, that's going to cause some conflict. We last heard from author and therapist Miriam Saunders when we spoke about secret feelings. She says along with managing grief, one of the biggest challenges she sees in marriages is a clash of parenting styles. A lot of times couples who are working with me, one parent will be very passive, another parent will be very authoritarian. 
and the poor child falls right in the middle because the um, the passive flexible parent is constantly overdoing for the child and the authoritarian parent is constantly yelling at the child you do as i say just because i say it you know that right there is probably the single biggest struggle is the different parenting approach the passive parent tends to think that they need to protect this child from the authoritarian parent um, and the authoritarian parent thinks you're raising a weak you know child who's never going to listen to anyone alongside parenting conflicts can come problems balancing time off or self-care for each parent this is a concept that miriam calls the happiness bucket there can be this feeling that there's only if there's a finite amount of happiness to be had and mm -hmm. that you're competing you know for that amount with your partner so partners can get resentful you know you just what do you mean you want to go play golf you just went out with your friends friday night i haven't had a break in three days instead of gosh the, how great for you to be able to play golf and i'm exhausted could we also possibly schedule a time for me to get a break? So really just continuing to support each other instead of seeing each other as rivals over this happiness bucket. It's very hard to be loving and nurturing in a relationship when you're depressed, angry, and anxious. It, it really is. This is Philip Cowan, who, along with his wife, Carolyn Pape Cowan, is a legend in the field of couples research and child development. As professors of psychology at UC Berkeley, they designed group interventions for couples to strengthen family relationships and help parents and children live healthier and more satisfying lives. It's, it's not that arguments are terrible. It's not even that conflict is terrible. It's what you do with it. It's, it's how you deal with it, how you solve it. The Cowans have conducted three major studies into how couples' relationships and fathers' involvement affects children. Carolyn told me their interest in the subject actually started decades ago when they had their own first child. What had happened to our relationship as a couple seemed a little mysterious to us and, and things were getting uh, a little bit um, tense and concerning to us. And then over the next few years, as we began to talk to other families and other parents, we clearly weren't the only ones. So we got the idea of trying to work with couples. Actually, Carolyn got the idea. Go ahead. Uh, who, who were about to have a first baby to start at the beginning of their family-making adventure and see if we could walk with them through the transition to first-time parenthood. Here's another way to look at it. Having a baby uh, is a minor to major earthquake in a <laughs> couple's relationship. And so there's a lot of stress involved. There's a lot of joy involved. But what we were focusing on that people didn't seem to know is that it really is a time when couples change one study that the Cowans conducted looked specifically at low-income parents who had financial stresses on top of the universal psychological stress of becoming new parents. 
satisfaction that the relationship goes down over time for quite a long number of years, actually. The quality of the relationship between the parents affects the child directly because if the couples are in high conflict, um, kids get scared. And if couples are frozen and don't talk to each other, kids get scared and think that the problem is because of them. The atmosphere between the parents, that's the atmosphere in which these kids are developing. And um, what they take from that is, you know, different, very important messages about one, whether they're worthy of being loved and cared for, but also um, whether when one has a problem or a difference of agreement, whether there's something you can do about it that isn't frightening or hopeless making. There's that idea of emotional Wi-Fi again. Another key component of the Cowan studies has been that they focus closely on supporting father's involvement. The services are focused on moms. What, fathers or chopped liver? What, what? Um, so bringing a father in is really important because no matter how involved in the day-to-day -day care of the child fathers, Fathers have tremendous impact on their kids. The couple also run weekly workshops for parents to find ways to improve their own relationships. Carolyn says they focus on small practical tips to reduce the points of friction in a partnership. Okay, so what, what do you think would help you when you're on your way in the door and she's already got the crying baby ready to hand to you and you, you haven't even decompressed from your day? What would be helpful? They can come up with well, if I had five minutes, 10 minutes to just change my clothes or, or, or breathe or something, um, small things that could make a difference. Phil says the workshops end in a special way. Each partner writes a letter of appreciation to their partner. And then they give the letters to their partners in the last session. And lots of tears. You know, none of us feel sufficiently appreciated for all of the things that we try to do. So to have a letter, a written letter of appreciation, really good deal. So if a letter of appreciation can be really helpful for a couple, we wanted to find out what could be really helpful for a whole family to work together. Christina Cipriano is the Director of Research at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. She uses a charter agreement with her classes, and she also uses one at home with her own family. So we created a charter together of how we want to feel at home and what we're going to do and commit to each other to feel that way. So, you know, listening and respecting and so forth. And then we signed it, um, my kids drew on it, and we hung it up in our kitchen and it continuously became a reference point of um, you know making sure that we are living the charter so if someone felt you know um, disrespected if they felt like they were not being heard or listened to or included um, that we would acknowledge that you know in the charter we committed as a family to feel that way like what can we do and how you know how do we address that need together Erin says she and her husband manage just by having an awareness of each other's needs in ways that may seem small, but that can make all the difference. 
we make sure that if we start realizing one of us has to tag out, that we tag them out. Like go take a minute to breathe. There are times in our home that get extremely stressful and one of us can usually sense that and it's like, why don't you go upstairs for an hour? Why don't you go outside for 10 minutes? Like just to kind of regroup. I'm not saying that works 100% of the time, but knowing that he and I have that support system for each other, it's the only way we get through it. Miriam Saunders says it's also important to be mindful about how you use the time you carve out with your partner. When you do find time to spend together, you have a tendency to talk about the kids or the bills that need to get paid or, you know, whatever, because this is your moment, your window. So intervention number one is, you know, really commit to time together and don't talk about the children, (laughs) you know, talk about things you enjoy, memories, anything else, because there was a reason that you came together and had children with this person to begin with. And it's very easy to lose sight of that, Um, but not that hard to remember why you love this person to begin with, if you can spend time with them. And for some people, that means getting creative. I worked with one couple once where they couldn't get time away because they couldn't afford babysitters on a regular basis. So they woke up an hour early on Thursday mornings. They had this dedicated hour just for each other and they talked about their wishes and dreams for that day. Um, Oh, I like that. And it was just a positive way to spend some time together and, and frame the day. So they started their day with positivity. Tom and his wife, Amy, provide a counterpoint to that couple time message. Spending time apart can be as important as, as spending time together, right? And those two oh, things yeah. complement each other. And we're not afraid to um, even be honest with each other, especially when, when one of us uh, you know, is off track in the other's mind, so to speak, right? I mean, yeah. That's important as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing that we've done is... Um, and sometimes are better than others is um, making sure we're taking care of ourselves. Like often sleep is something that um, certainly during times of crisis, you're not getting a lot of um, as sleep was one issue that our son had during moments of crisis, just helping each other, like taking turns, different nights, exercise, spending time with friends or people who brought us energy was another, I think, piece that we've tried to maintain our sanity around this too. Amy and Tom have three kids and they've also found solutions for that sibling dynamic. We told our youngest daughter, we said, we think you should see somebody like a professional to talk about like Um, how our family life and um, Jackson's impacted her. And um, she was 100% resistant, screaming, yelling. And then I finally negotiated and said, you just have to go three times. And she's like, I'm only doing it for you. And I said, that's totally fine. And um, now she has a relationship with this person. So, which is useful for many other things. Amy and Tom sought help outside of the family. Jackie says what helped her the most was talking openly with all of her kids. Especially with a mental health disability, we, our whole family now, you know, it's just common language in our house. We constantly 
are talking about um, how when you don't feel good emotionally, mm-hmm. what can happen, and talking with with siblings um, just about how to, how to see things a different way. Even though we we you know we saw someone who was irritable and angry and didn't want to be here. Um, helping that sibling, I think, to, um, to understand that was, is probably one of the best things we did. I mean, I always felt like my kids knew too much about mental health, but in a way, mm. it's, it's, I think it's better in the end. Next time on A Little Easier, they say it takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to support the parents. But very few of us have that village anymore. We'll explore how some parents have built their own. We need to be connecting with people who, yes, see us and hear us and understand us, and also are committed to helping us get to a better place. That's next time on A Little Easier. We'll end, as always, with a microaction moment. Here's one that might sound almost too simple, but it's one that's come up again and again in my conversations. Emily Hall reminds us that sometimes the most important ingredient for siblings or any kids can be your undivided attention. It's so important, I think, for um, parents to set aside special time with their typically developing children, which sounds like who has enough time in the day, right? I mean, if anyone listening to this feels that they have enough time in the day, please call me and, and tell me how that is possible. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the good news with siblings is, is that a little bit goes a long way. From my own experience, growing up, uh, once a week on Fridays, we would get takeout for dinner and my mom and I would pick it up and it would be 15 minutes in the car together, just me and my mom, and we could talk about everything or nothing just listen to music or talk about our day, talk about what was going on with my brother, and then 15 minutes on the car ride home. So that was 30 minutes that I had my mom's undivided attention. It was, it was the most magical 30 minutes of my week. I'm Kendra Wild, and this has been A Little Easier, the show that was created to help you find more joy and resilience when parenting is extra challenging. Thank you so much for being here. Make sure you're subscribed to A Little Easier in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Share it with family and friends. We're an independent show focused on elevating parents because you're the most important force behind your child's well-being. Visit alitteleasier.org for show notes and discussion questions, plus resources on parental burnout and resilience building. A Little Easier is written by Harriet Jones and co-produced by Harriet and Ray Kantrowitz. Sound design and original music by Ray. This podcast is brought to you by Wild Peace for Parents and me, Kendra Wild.